0: This podcast is offered by Jokoji Zen Center, on the web at jokoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Spirit of beginner's mind is important to us. And so with that in mind, I will proceed to talk about Zen for beginners. in the hope that it can remind us all to remember that, that beginner's mind. And so pretty much the first thing I wrote down in my notes that I should talk about is what is Zen? And I think in some ways there's two ways of answering that that are very different. One way, which maybe you would say is the, I don't know, the scholarly way of answering or the um, even secular way of answering is that Zen is a branch of Buddhism, specifically Soto Zen, which is our, Uh, lineage is that branch from Japan. Buddhism as all of you know, I'm sure, began in what is now Northern India with the historical Buddha sometime around 400 BCE. Buddha was a prince raised in great luxury It had been foretold that he might become a great spiritual teacher, and his parents were not very happy with that possibility. And so they did everything they could to steer him away from the spiritual life, assuming, I think, probably correctly, that what tends to lead us towards spiritual practice uh, is suffering. And so they did everything they could to shelter him and to keep him from suffering. It's said that they posted guards at the palace gates and anyone who seemed unhappy was not allowed in. Uh, And they created this sort of magical world where essentially his every whim was catered to. And I think uh, perhaps many of us who are parents can sort of identify with that impulse, that sheltering impulse, um, and also identify with what happened next, which is that it worked for a while can shelter somebody for a while. Uh, but then it stopped working and as Buddha grew into first a teenager and then a young adult, he just couldn't shake this nagging sense that there was something more uh, than just this fun and games. And it said that he, snuck away from the palace, traveled to a nearby village, and there encountered what we now know as the three three signs, Uh, a person who was sick, a person who was quite old, and then a funeral procession that included a person uh, who was dead. And at these signs of sickness, old age and death, which Buddha had never encountered before. He became even more sure that there had to be something more to life than what he had experienced. That uh, a life of pleasure in the long run would provide no escape from these three forms of suffering. So after he got back to the palace, he cut off his hair, escaped again and became a wandering mendicant, holy man. And uh, again, I think in an impulse that many of us will recognize, he decided that if what his parents had tried this sort of life of luxury wasn't the answer, then maybe what he should try is the exact opposite. And so that's what he did for several years. He led a life of really unrelenting difficulty and pain. He tried all sorts of very difficult ascetic practices. He ate so little, and got so thin that it said you could see his ribs from the back. Um, He tried holding his breath for so long that even the gods started to think he had died. But none of this really worked either. And at some point he realized that continuing along these lines, following this opposite path, was in some ways only bringing him more suffering. It wasn't helping him end suffering. It wasn't really getting him any closer to the answers to these questions. And fortunately at that moment, a young girl walked by, offered him some milk and that was enough to revive his strength And he found a quiet place under a tree and sat meditation just as we've been sitting this morning. And he sat all night. And then early in the morning, as the morning star was just appearing, he had an awakening and realized that if the answer wasn't in chasing pleasure and the answer wasn't in chasing pain, that the answer must be in the middle. And this middle way became his fundamental teaching. And at first he really wanted to end the story there. He felt it had been so difficult for him to arise, arrive at this truth that it just seemed very unlikely that anyone else would be able to understand it. That the subtlety of this middle way, this path to liberation from suffering was just too difficult. But it said that the, gods interceded, pleaded with him to become a teacher and he decided to give it a try. And for the rest of his life, I think some 40 years, he pretty much did nothing else. He traveled all around Northern India, teaching, collecting students, We don't know exactly how many students he taught in his lifetime. But the scriptures tell of individual lectures that had 500 monks and nuns and lay people in attendance. So it must've been quite a few. And from there, Buddhism spread. After his death, his students gathered together to uh, agree on his teachings creating what we now know as the Pali Canon and went off to recite these teachings and spread them first all around India, then beyond south to Sri Lanka, east into Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, north to China and Tibet. And uh, each new culture that Buddhism encountered seems to have added something and also perhaps to have taken something away so that the faith really continued to evolve. In Tibet, of course, Buddhism encountered a complex set of mystical teachings and has led to the very complex practices of Tibetan Buddhism. In China, Buddhism encountered a couple of indigenous faiths, traditions, the teachings of Confucius with their emphasis on sort of structure, order, and the Taoist teachings which in many ways are very, very different with their focus on the unknowable. The most famous book of Taoism, the Tao Te Ching famously begins, the Tao that can be spoken is not the true Tao. And out of that encounter between Buddhism, Taoism, and maybe a little Confucianism, came all kinds of new schools of Buddhist teachings, one of which was Zen, which developed for several centuries in China, and then ultimately spread to Japan. our branch, the Soto Zen branch was brought to Japan by Dogen. He traveled to China, studied with some of the great masters there and then brought their teachings back home. And in Japan, I think Buddhism too Gained some things, lost some things, evolved. Dogen Zen has this almost unrelenting emphasis on on practice, on sitting, and sitting without without goal, without. Uh, some further purpose. At the same time, Japan being a very structured and organized culture, Dogen Zen had a lot of structure. He wrote whole books about the various temple roles, how to organize practice in a formal way, how to organize temple life. And Japanese Zen Buddhism developed many many formal practices and rituals and so from there then Zen came to America as I mentioned our lineage in some ways started with Shunryu Suzuki coming over and then inviting our founding teacher, Kobin to join him. The two of them together really were responsible for practice at Tassahara, the first Zen monastery in the West, where it was really Kobin who took it upon himself to adapt these complex rituals from Japan to something he felt would be more appropriate for American practice. And so, you know, practices that have become well established really across Zen temples in America, like Orioki, are in some sense ancient practices, but in other ways they're really Coben's invention. They're his simplification that he thought would work for us. And after doing that for a while, he, he left and started several other temples, including Jokoji, where again, he kept refining his vision, adding some things, taking some things away, and giving us the practice that we have now in our temple which is in many ways even, or not in many ways, it is less formal than Tasahara, but retains some, some elements of these rituals as we saw in our service. And so, as I said, one answer to the question of what is Zen is that it is the end result of that evolution. It's the branch of Buddhism that has come to us and that we practice here at Jikoji. But I think, again, there's another answer that Zen is also something else. The word Zen itself you trace it back to the Japanese, Chinese, Sanskrit, Pali, it basically means meditation. And so of course that's our focus. We are the, the school of Buddhism that focuses on meditation. And when people use the word Zen, like in a, in pop culture, talking about something being very Zen, that often means that it's very calm, serene. And although meditation is not always calm and serene, it sort of looks that way from the outside since we're not moving most of the time. And so that's where that connotation comes from. But sometimes there's also another meaning to Zen in pop culture, where it sometimes means contradiction, two things that seem to be completely opposed to each other. And I think this gets to the heart of the sort of other meaning of Zen, this meaning that comes in part from that meeting with Taoism that we, that I mentioned before. This sense of contradiction that we also see in the Heart Sutra, that there's no suffering and no elimination of suffering. And this teaching that's so central to Zen around these sort of ineffable contradictions. We often describe that as the teaching of emptiness, the teaching of no self. And so what does no self really mean? It's of course a hard question to answer Because like so many things in Zen, there is both self and no self. If we were all sitting together at Chikoji, perhaps maybe during the period of Kinhin between our two sittings, walking through the Zendo and you bumped into me, you wouldn't walk right through me. You would feel me because there is something there. There is something to this person. We're not ghosts, we're not immaterial. There is some element of self that is real. And so given that, given the reality of that experience that we can all have, we can all prove that you can, you can touch a self and you don't, and the self uh, exists, what could no self possibly mean? And this is where emptiness comes in. No self is really a shorthand way of saying, that the self that we see the self that exists the self that you might bump into in the zendo is empty there's sort of nothing inside of it that makes it a self there's no unchanging core there's no there's no one thing inside and not to be gruesome but you can sort of imagine this that you know if you you're a self and you lose an arm you know you're still a self and you could lose a leg and you would still be that self and somehow there's no one thing that if you lose that then suddenly you lose the self and so If there's not one thing inside that makes you a self, then what does it mean to be a self? In other talks, I've given the analogy, which is less gruesome, of a car. I have a car parked outside here. If it turned out that maybe overnight, some kids came by and took all the wheels off the car, I would still say it's a car. And even if they took the engine away, I would still say it's a car. And you can kind of go through it piece by piece. And it turns out there you can't get to that one piece that makes that the car. And similarly, you could imagine taking it to the dealer and they replace all the wheels. Well, I would still say it's my car. And then maybe they replace the engine and I would still say it's my car. And again, piece by piece, they could replace every bit of it. And yet somehow I would still identify it as my car. But if there is no essential thing that makes it my car, then maybe that's just an arbitrary label. Then maybe at some level, there is no my car beyond that concept. And so no self means that Like everything in this universe, the self is is empty of that essential unchanging form. And when we talk about awakening through meditation in Zen, we mean awakening to that truth. And with that truth, can come a sense of liberation, of liberation from suffering as Buddha was first imagining. Because if everything is empty, if nothing lasts forever, if everything is impermanent, then suffering must be empty too and suffering must be impermanent. And that is why we have as part of our Four Noble Truths that life is suffering, but there is also an end to suffering. Suffering exists and non-suffering exists. Suffering is everywhere, but liberation is possible. This is uh, February, which is black history month in America. And I was thinking about that yesterday too. And so I thought I should say something about what does this no self mean about all these identities that we carry with us identities around gender, identities around race. If there's no self, what does it mean to say that someone is black, someone is white, that someone is Japanese, that someone is American? What is it? that these labels are really labeling. Earthland Manuel, a great black Zen master has a lovely way of putting this that oneness does not mean sameness. That the fact that we are all one and we are all empty, does not mean that we're all the same. In the same way that no self doesn't mean that you can walk right through me in the zendo, it also doesn't erase our differences in physical appearance, personal history. And it certainly doesn't erase the long history of oppression based on those differences. The doctrines of no self didn't stop some Japanese nationalists from believing in their racial superiority. And it's certainly no excuse for us not to examine our own histories of prejudice. And yet, I think the great lesson of Buddha is a very hopeful one. The great lesson is that liberation is possible for everyone, for anyone, regardless of our physical form, that all of us can realize that emptiness, awaken to those truths and be liberated from suffering. Buddha taught students of all kinds. He taught everyone from royalty to slaves. He taught people of many races, religions, genders. He taught holy men and he taught criminals. And there are examples in our scriptures of all such people accepting his teachings, awakening to their truth and experiencing liberation. And so To get back to my original question, perhaps that is the best answer to the question of what is Zen. It is our unwavering belief that everyone can realize their awakening through practice. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at org.